It's such a great uh, pleasure again to be before you all. I told the first service this morning, I was born, baptized, and raised in this denomination, but I don't think I've ever sung that hymn. Uh, so I thank John for, for picking that one. It's, it's very appropriate this morning. So I want to look at Exodus chapter 12 with you as we draw near to Easter. I thought it would be appropriate uh, just to take this opportunity to look at the Passover, the first Passover as it comes to us in the Exodus. And while you're turning there, I just I always like to take this opportunity to say thank you. Uh, and it's just my, this is my way of, of giving back to you for all that you do for me and for my family and for our ministry at RUF at Mercer. Um, just thank you for all your words of encouragement, for your support, for your financial support and your prayers. We covered your prayers. We had our, um, our annual pig jig this past Friday night out at the Maddox's Farm in Gray. We had over 75 students there. We square danced and ate barbecue. It was a great time. Um, and we're fastly approaching the end of the semester. So I just want to encourage you that I'm encouraged that God is at work at Mercer University. So thank you uh, for being a part of that, such a vital part of it for me, I know. Let's now take a look at here at Exodus 12. I'm not going to read. I'm going to read to verse 30. And because it's a good chunk of Scripture, I'm going to read faster than normal. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall not let, you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. On the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month at evening you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your house. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall... You shall eat unleavened bread. 
Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when, the, when, when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Thus ends the reading of God's word, holy and inspired me. Add his blessing to the reading and preaching of it. What are you going to do with a story like this? It's as messy as it is long and tedious to read. It's a messy story. I stumbled upon a blog uh, last fall uh, and had a quote from a book called Alias Grace by Margaret Atwood. I know nothing of the book other than I found this quote. And this is what she says. She says this, When you're in the middle of a story... It isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness, a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. And the author of the blog, he used that quote to apply it to his own situation, and he said this. He said, our stories are often not as neat as we'd like them to be because we ourselves are messy. I think that's a, I love that quote because I think it's a beautiful take on one of the defining hard truths of life. That we are messy and that we are broken. We're broken as individuals. Our families are messy. Our families are broken. Our communities are broken. Our churches are broken. We are messy, broken people. And we have to come to the grips with the fact that the fact that we are messy, broken people, it touches every aspect of our lives. All that we do, all that we are. This morning we have a messy story. It's unsettling. As blood unsettles people, this story about blood unsettles us. What are we to do with the messiness of the story, the messiness, messiness of the message that God is trying to get across both to his people and to Egypt and the world? That God himself comes down, kills every firstborn Egyptian male from the house of Pharaoh all the way down to the child of the slave girl. And the only thing that saves Israel is a lamb, the blood of a lamb. And if that's not unsettling enough, this Passover becomes the defining ritual of the Jewish people into the, into the future. And after Christ, albeit a transformed meal, it becomes a defining ritual of the church as well. We are messy and broken, and we have a God who has chosen to condescend in love to messy, broken people. And the message of this story and the message of the Bible 
is that for that to happen, there will be blood. And that's what I want to look at this morning. Three things. I want to look at the, the history of the blood, the meaning of the blood, and the future of the blood. So the first thing we see and that I want to, want to look at this morning is, is the history of the blood. The story is somewhat straightforward that God is going to execute this final plague against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And he's going to come down as the destroyer and he's going to plow through the Egyptians like a rock through water. And there's only one thing that will protect you, God says. A lamb. You're to take that lamb. You're to kill that lamb. You're to use its blood and put it on your doorpost. How do we begin to understand a story like this, make sense of a story like this, find our story in a story like this? Well, one commentator, Peter Enns, he would have us dial back all the way to Genesis 22. Do you remember the story? It's one of the last stories of the narrative of Abraham's life when uh, Abraham finally had his son that God had promised. And behold, one day God shows up again. And this time he says this, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Have you ever wondered why Abraham does not balk? As the story reads, it doesn't seem like he balks at the command at all. He gets up and goes. And it's funny, when you read the whole story of Abraham's life, he messes up a lot. He doesn't follow through with the word of God a lot. But when you get to this story, probably one of the ones that sticks out to us the most, he doesn't flinch. He goes and he takes his son. Well, there's something we've got to understand. The reason uh, commentators would have us think back to that story and then the way the rest of the Old Testament unfolds is because we have to remember that in the ancient Near East, people did not have individual aspirations. People had familial and communal aspirations, meaning your desire for success and achievement in this life was not defined in terms of you like we do in Western culture. But then it was defined in terms of the family, defined in terms of the community. You, what you aspire to in life, your goal and aspirations was for your family to succeed. And that works in reverse too. Because if one member of the family brought, was, um, was a failure or, brought, or had uh, a moment of shame, that failure and shame was then projected on the whole family. That's what makes the parable of the prodigal son so compelling, as, Chip, uh, as we looked into it with Chip last week, that um, these two sons, it's not just the failure and shame on them, but it's the shame and failure they've brought upon their father and the whole family and the future of the family as a result. In this culture, who was the linchpin? Who was the foundation of the future and success of the family? The firstborn son. Firstborn sons back then uh, got two-thirds of the inheritance, and then the last third everybody else had to divide. The firstborn son was the foundation. And what we find in the Bible is that the firstborn is also special in the sight of God. Look at Exodus uh, 22, Numbers 3, Numbers 8. God over and over tells his people that the life of the firstborn child of every family belongs to him. So much so... That every year, every family had to go to the place of worship and make an offering to redeem the life of their firstborn child. That's what God tells them to do. Meaning they had to every year go to the place of sacrifice and buy back the life of their firstborn son. Because it belonged to God. And in fact, if you didn't, your lives were forfeit because of it. And basically God says there's a debt hanging over every family on the face of the earth. And your firstborn is liable for the way in which you're living. 
And the thing is, is in these times, everybody understood this. So if you go back to the weird story of Genesis 22, Abraham understood it. You see, if God had come and told Abraham, go and sacrifice your wife, Sarah, that wouldn't have made any sense. But he comes and says, come and sacrifice your son to me. Abraham knew that God was calling in the family debt, and Abraham knew that God had every right to do it. See, Genesis, the Genesis 22 story, it only makes sense if there was a real possibility that Abraham would carry it out. And what we see here, actually, we get this passage in Exodus 4, where God is another weird passage we don't have time to talk about. But in Exodus 4, God tells this to Moses. He says, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. See, what we find here is that God has come down and he's calling in the debt against Pharaoh for his firstborn son. And it's costly and it's messy and it involves blood. The tear-jerking part of Genesis 22 is that Isaac, the one that's going to be sacrificed, goes and he says, here's the wood and here's the fire, but where's the lamb? And Abraham looks at his son and he says, God will provide a lamb. See, Abraham knew that one way or another, God was going to have to reconcile the promise that he'd made that his offspring would go forever. He had to reconcile that with the debt that had to be paid. Abraham knew that there was a debt that had to be paid. That's the history of the blood. Let's move on to the meaning of the blood. Secondly, as we see it in the story. And we think about this as we're trying to piece all this together. I'm not saying that you're you're supposed to automatically make sense of that. But as we try to make sense of all this, we we think to ourselves, this is a bit extreme, right? What kind of brutal, primitive God is going to require this of his people? Surely the Bible doesn't expect us to believe that sin is so bad that every family's firstborn child is liable. The answer of Scripture is actually yes. Sin is that bad. Sin is that serious. And if we miss that, if you miss that, the Bible probably doesn't make too much sense to you. Because what God tells us over and over again is that he is far more offended with our sin than we are. You think about this. If the God of the universe made all things, if the God of the universe made you, he has every right over you. Whether you acknowledge him as your maker or not, if he made you, he has every right to your life and the way that you live it. Your behavior, your aspirations, how you're going to live, how you're going to raise your children, how you're going to pursue a healthy marriage. God is the one that has the say-so in all of those things because he made you. He's our maker. But the thing is, is that our offense is double. Not only do we rebel against our maker... But in our heart of hearts, we often look at it and say, it's not that bad, is it? I have a personal illustration, but I won't put it in personal terms. It's one thing in college to have a roommate that comes in almost every night drunk when you've tried to go to sleep, right? It's another thing in the next day when you try to talk to said roommate about it, and he says, it's not that big of a deal, 
The Bible would say that we do that to God daily in the way that we treat our sin. And this makes us uncomfortable dealing with sin, dealing with what God has done to deal with it. So we ask, why can't God just forgive? Tim Keller takes this question up in his book, The Reason for God. Why can't God just forgive? How many people in dealing with the story of Jesus and the cross and, the, and, the, and wonder at it, why the bloody mess? I don't know if you remember when the Passion of the Christ movie came out. That's what all the authors were talking about. Why the bloody mess of this story? But therein lies the inherent misunderstanding in forgiveness. The inherent misunderstanding in a holy God dealing with his sinful creatures. Keller says this. Real forgiveness is costly suffering. Real forgiveness is costly suffering. The illustration he uses, I think, or one I've heard often before, is that if if somebody wipes out someone's fence with their car, there's only one of two things that can happen. Either the owner makes that person pay for the damage that they have inflicted, or the owner can forgive and not make that person pay. But there's something that's true in both scenarios. Someone must pay. Someone must pay for the damage that's done. There's two ways that we see this in this story this morning. Two ways that we see sin is serious and that forgiveness is costly. And the first one is this. Did you notice in the story that the Israelites, the Israelite children, are just as liable to have what happens to the firstborn of Egypt? They're just as liable to lose a son that night as the Egyptians were. You see, in plagues, if you read through plagues 4 through 9, you have all these uh, cataclysmic catastrophes coming, and God singles Israel out and doesn't let the plagues touch them. But in this plague, what's different? The Israelites actually have to take an active stand. They have to actively participate in order to be passed over. Verse 13, look at verse 13 there. God says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And he says, when I see, not when I see you, he says, when I see the blood, I will pass over. Children in Israelite households were not spared because they were chosen or favored of God. They were spared because of blood. Imagine two Jewish households that night. Two Jewish households as the cries from all around Egypt are going up as the destroyer makes his way through. In one house, you have a child quivering in the corner as the rest of the family is by the fire going through the Passover ritual. And he doesn't know what's going to happen next, and he wonders to himself, am I next? In another Jewish household, you have a son who confidently sits in his father's lap, listening to him as he tells the story. But here's the thing. The next morning, both of them survive. Why? It's only because of the blood. It's only because blood was spilt in their place. And that's the second way we see sin is serious and forgiveness is costly in this story. Because we see that the blood shows us that the lamb was the substitute. The lamb is the substitute. Verse 30, where we read that there is not a house where someone was not dead. This was true for Israel, Israelite houses as well. In all of Egypt, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. In every Hebrew household, a son looked into the fire and said, the only reason that I am here is because of that lamb. Sin is serious. 
Forgiveness is costly. And a debt must be paid. That leads us to the final thing here. The future of the blood. The future of the blood. There's a reason. I know it's some, it can be tedious to read such a long passage on a Sunday morning. But the reason that we do that. The reason why we preach the word. Right? We read through these. We let these words uh, pour over us. The meticulous repetition of these instructions, it keys us to something very important. The focus is not simply on regulations. The meal is not just to be for this historical moment. What's clear in the instructions is that this is to be a celebration as a lasting ordinance. Into a, and it, it comes with a future orientation. It was, um, you notice there it said, when you eat it, eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals tied. There's one commentator that takes that and says this was a meal for pilgrims. This was a meal for people on their way. Meaning this is a meal for people going somewhere. Meaning when you have this meal, you're reminded of where you're about to go. The event's so huge that we read in verse 2 that from that point on, on, it would mark a new year. The calendar was going to be completely reoriented now on this meal. A constant reminder of what God has done that we would look to what, can, what he continues to and will do. And this is the beautiful part of the story. And I can't remember from my maths right here, but it's in my notes, so I'll say it. Fast forward some 1,500 years. Luke 22. We find Jesus and his disciples doing the very thing that's outlined in this chapter. And as was custom, since Jesus was the provider of the meal, he would be the one to stand up and explain the why of what they were doing. And as tradition has it, the statement would be, this is the bread of our affliction that our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. But we don't hear Jesus say that. What we hear Jesus saying in all of the Gospels is this is... This is my body. In other words, this is the bread of my affliction for you. What are the three elements of the Passover? Bread, wine, and a lamb. But something interesting in the Gospels, we see that there's bread and that there's wine, but there's no lamb. You see, there's no lamb on the table because the lamb was seated at the table. It's what John the Baptist fully understood before Jesus had even begun his public ministry. We have John the Baptist saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus deliberately moves that lamb at the, removes that lamb at the Last Supper. Why? To say this, that my death is the central event to which all of history has been moving and for all the future will look back upon. There is still a debt of sin hanging over the world, and I have come to remove it once and for all. And the thing is, is he hadn't kept that secret. Mark 10, 45, we read, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the firstborn of God, the one on whom the favor of the Father eternally rests. But in the Old Testament... Whereas the Israel, the firstborn of God, was redeemed through a substitute, what we find in Christ is that now the firstborn son is the substitute. He is the means of redemption. And as Abraham went up the mountain with his son, so God took his son up a mountain, except this time he would send no one to stop it. And we read in the Gospels that Jesus died at twilight. 
The same instruction, verse 6 there. The whole assembly shall gather and kill their lambs at twilight. When Jesus dies at twilight, the Passover lamb is being slaughtered in the temple at that very moment. In conclusion, I just want to ask you, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with the story of blood? We've spent this whole hour singing about, reading about, praying about, and hearing uh, preached about blood. We sing about blood. We sing about the blood of our Savior. We remember His death. We cling to it with hope and assurance that He has paid the debt. I want to tell you something because someone loved me enough to tell me that there is a debt of sin hanging over every one of us. And it can only be redeemed by blood. What are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? We're going to get our lives together. We're going to straighten up. We're going to try harder. The Passover pointed for generations to the fact that God provided a lamb. So too, when we regularly come to the table, we are reminded of the fact that God provided a lamb and it was his only son. Constant reminder that in this story, in our story, life comes from death. That by the death of a lamb, salvation was actually accomplished. And here in Exodus 12, the blood smeared on the doors, a visible token that a life had been laid down in that place. This is precisely why Jesus, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, Jesus did not command us to commemorate his birth in any specific way. He did not command us even to commemorate his resurrection in any certain way, but he did command us how to commemorate his death. As Paul tells us in Corinthians, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's nothing neat about this story. There's nothing neat about the gospel story. There's nothing neat about your story. If you're honest, you know that. You know that our stories are messy and broken. Flannery O'Connor Great short story writer. She was once asked to describe one of her short stories in a nutshell. And she told the, the person who asked, she responded, she said, if, if she could have put the story in a nutshell, she wouldn't have had to write it. This story is messy because God chose to love messy, broken people. And in order for this God to love messy, broken people, people, there will be blood. But you see, Lord's Supper, it not only points us to what God has done in Christ, but it points us to what he continues to do until he comes again in glory. Because what the Lord's Supper does for us is it points us to a future meal, an end-time banquet in which we will all celebrate the final victory of the sacrificed and risen Lamb. We opened our worship service with it. We will spend eternity looking at the one who has every right over us, but we will spend eternity looking at the one who appears as though he was slain. Is your story messy? It's okay. This one's messy too. May we turn to him. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed, we are in awe 
that you would condescend to us in love, knowing what you were getting into, knowing what it would cost. Father, we long to hear the story this morning. More than that, we long to believe that it's true, that you gave your son, that you put him in our place to die the death we should have died, that we might be your children. We long to know that, and we long to know it in our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose name we pray in. Amen.